Hi, this is the podcast channel of Lighthouse Church in Ottawa, Canada. We are a family. We don't do life alone. We are about the one, each and every one. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Our hope and prayer is always for life change. Here is today's message. Be blessed as you listen. We've been in a series over the past, um, the month of March, really, and we're going to wrap that up today um, by the grace of God. (laughs) And the the series has been about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, We started out the very first week in the month, and we said a few things about the faithfulness of the one, right? And then the week after that, we talked about the God of the promise, Last week, we spoke about how to walk with a covenant God, saying that God is a God of covenants. But if you don't understand how, the way you work, not just work, but walk with a God of covenant, that you might miss out on a few things. And we talked about six things. Well, we talked about four things, even though we mentioned six things that you need to do when you want to walk with a covenant God, right? We said it requires sacrifice. It requires commitment, right? It requires hearing his voice, right? and it requires process. Remember that? Remember that? Okay. Um, So some people reached out to me, well, feedback was we should finish the other two, and um, I'll try to talk about the other two for the next five to 10 minutes, and then I'll talk about what I have to say today, which is really just a very strong word of encouragement. We have to bring balance to the word of God. So whenever we teach God's word, we cannot just teach you all the blessings and all the promises and all the grand things that God is doing. You have to understand what it takes, what is your responsibility, and that's what we've done. We've laid the foundation over the past two, three weeks. Now I can tell you about the things you would expect to see in your life going forward in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I also want to remind us about some of the words that God gave us at the end of last year. He told our church that we are going to go forward. Do you remember that? I'm just reminding you in case you forgot that we are going to go forward. We're going to go forward. He said that our light has come, all right? And he said he will help us. I think we can agree that this year, this first quarter, God has helped us. Okay, I can agree. We can agree that we are going forward, right? Okay, and that our light has come. Please continue to pray those words in your personal life, your family as well, as we prayed over this house. And we continue to pray that for you guys as well. God bless you. Amen. All right. So last week, like I said, I stopped at number four. I want to talk about number five and six very quickly just so that people can have the benefit. And please, if you've missed any part of the series, there is a very systematic way to approach the Word of God. This haphazard, you open your Bible, you just put your hand somewhere, flip it and say, this is what God wants me to study today. That stuff doesn't work. All right. You have to be very systematic about studying the Word of God so that your heart all right, can be stirred up and you can have a proper understanding. It's just like a course, like a course curriculum, right? You don't go to school, you just show up in any class on Tuesday. They say, oh, so what class is this? It's agriculture. Okay, fine, you're an engineering major, you're in, you're in agriculture. The next week you show up to a dance class and put on dance shoes. It doesn't work that way, right? There's a very, very specific body of truth that you need and there's, a, there's an orderly account that we bring to you. So you need to go back and listen to everything that you missed. Number five, I talked about how to walk with a covenant God is faith, all right? I was gonna talk about that last week, faith. Now, when we think about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we know, we know that Abraham is a father of faith, right? He is the guy that um, taught us the dimensions of faith. And what is faith? 
there are all these definitions of faith. There's a scriptural definition. The Bible says in Hebrews 11 and 6 that faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. But to us, what does that really mean? So in my understanding, my definition of faith is that faith is obeying God, all right, and acting, all right, in line with what you know about God to prove your trust and confidence in him. Say that again. It's obeying God and acting on what you know about God to prove your trust and your confidence in him. Faith is not believing God. Because people say, I believe God, I have faith. No, no, no. Faith is way more than believing God. The Bible says even the demons believe. It's obeying God and acting on what you know about God to prove your trust and confidence. And listen to me, that word know there is critical because it's not a head knowledge. It's a revelation knowledge. So you can't, so people do this all the time and we are all guilty as Christians. You, you read the Bible, you see something in the Bible, you shall be head and not tail. You say, well, I believe it. And you say you have faith. No, 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 no. Until that word enters your spirit, it is a knowing of revelation. It's not a head knowledge because every time you are hit with the facts of a situation, logic flies out of your head. Logic would always override what you know in your head. It's what's in your heart that logic cannot override. So for example, God forbid, the doctors tell you you have <laughs> a terminal illness or a disease. You read the Bible, the Bible says, by his stripes I was healed. You know it's in your head. You believe it, but it hasn't entered your heart. The moment you see a scan and the doctor says, look, I'm telling you this swelling here, here, here equals death. The logic in your head is going to fly out because facts would always override what's in your head, but it's what you know in your heart. So that knowledge is not a head knowledge. Let me just get that clear. That immediately tells you that there is some amount of work you need to do to have faith. It means that you must transfer what's in your head to your heart. That's when it becomes faith. As a matter of fact, faith is very spiritual. The Bible says that there is a spirit of faith. There is a spirit of faith. So faith is not understanding. Faith is not, you know, just taking the Bible, you memorize some scriptures. Until those scriptures become life to you, you don't have faith yet. And when you're confronted with reality, you would buckle. And you can all admit that you've been there before. I've been there before, many times. I thought I had faith. I was confessing the word. And then the reality came. I was like, bro, I have no faith on this issue. Let's talk about this next year. It happens. The reason why is because we have not transported or transferred what's in our head to our hearts. I heard someone say that the farthest distance is the distance from your head to your heart. I believe it. I believe it. I believe it. That's a spiritual work that the Holy Ghost must do in you. Must do in you. All right? So why does it take faith to walk with God? Number one, God is a spirit and he cannot be seen. He cannot be seen. Have you ever seen God? Let me suspect someone. You've ever seen God? Like God, you've seen him face to face. No. He's a spirit and cannot be seen. So how do you walk with someone who cannot be seen? By faith. Number two, the reason why you need faith is because his ways cannot be understood. A lot of times, a lot of times, not every time, when God is speaking to a people, what he's saying to them doesn't make sense. Do you understand? God doesn't speak like me. I try to make sense eight out of ten times. I try. <laughs> not every time, but I try. But God does not, the things that God says do not make sense. So God takes Abraham, a man who is way past the age of childbearing, and his wife, and says, I'll make you a father. He doesn't say, I'll make you a father of one. I'll make you a father of many nations. And God is going, and Abraham is going, you're funny. You're such a comedian. But that's the reality 
of the God that we serve. He doesn't speak to you from your point of view. He speaks from his point of view. He speaks from an eternal realm. And in that realm, there are no impossibilities. There is nothing difficult in that realm. You need faith because God cannot be seen. You need faith because you cannot understand him. So what faith does is that it bridges the gap between what cannot be understood and what cannot be seen. All right? So the Bible tells us, this is how the Bible puts it in Hebrews 11 and verse 3. It says that by faith, we understand. We understand. There are certain things that you can only understand by faith. Now, what do we understand? We understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made by the things which are visible. In other words, by faith, we understand that the invisible realm controls the physical realm. And so you can understand fully that if a God that you have never seen says something to you in your secret place, gives you a promise that you can take it to the bank, it's as good as a bank draft, all right, because God cannot lie. He cannot lie. By faith, we understand. And so when you get to the, you know, the faith hall of fame in the book of Hebrews, the Bible talks about the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of which the series we're talking about. He says that by faith, Abraham did certain things. He left his father's house. By faith, Isaac stayed. Okay? By faith, Jacob blessed his children. There is a working of faith that we see in the patriarchs that if we are to reap the benefits of walking with a covenant God, you cannot do it any other way. It has to be by faith. This right here is where the body of work that it takes to be a Christian it sits. Because, like I said, it takes work to build faith. And you're here trying to walk with God every day, and you have no faith. The only way to walk with a covenant God is by faith. Because you cannot see God, and you cannot understand his ways. That scripture, I love it, because the Bible says that as high as the heavens are from the earth, that's how high his ways are above ours. In other words, you and God don't even speak the same language. You don't even speak the same language. So it even takes faith for us to understand what God is saying. He goes to a man called Gideon who is hiding and says to him, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. And Gideon looks around like, God, who is God talking to right now? He says, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. So for some of you right now, the things that God is saying to you in this season of your life doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense at all. But that's how God speaks. He speaks from his perspective. And without faith... It is impossible to please God or to walk with him. Impossible. 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 That's all I'll say about faith. The sixth one was I said, if you're going to walk with the God of covenants, you must understand the concept of altars. Altars. <laughs> now, I don't really know how to define altars um, in a clean way, but I will try. An altar is... I want to call it a place or a system of interfacing between humanity and divinity. Does that make sense? No, you guys don't like that. So an altar is a place where spirits and human beings interface. Does that sound better? So for some of you, the places you come from, some, just some of you, <laughs> not all of you, there are things called altars, demonic altars, where people interface with spirits. Legitimately, please, please, don't be in Canada because of the winter and say this doesn't happen. These things happen. It, you said true. Thank you. I have your witness. <laughs> um, yeah, so an altar is a place of interfacing between spirits and human beings. Now, there, of course, everything that you see in the dark realm is a copy of God's dimension. All right? The enemy is a copycat. He has no new tricks. 
So God really is the one who originated the concept of altars. With, with God, you understand that before you can interface with God, there has to be a system of interaction. All right. And so when you look at the story of Abraham, because we're talking about how to walk with a covenant God, if it is by covenant that you walk with this God, it means that there must be altars. And so Abraham was a guy who understood the concept of altars. The Bible says that when he moved from one place to another place, wherever Abraham pitched his tent, he would make an altar or he would raise an altar to God. Whenever God spoke to Abraham, he would raise an altar to God. And there are certain things that make for altars, all right? Um, <laughs> an altar doesn't have to be physical anymore. Back in the day, it had to be, all right? So, for example, sacrifice is one of the things that makes for an altar. But there are other two things, because I already spoke about sacrifice. One of them is prayer, and the other one is an offering. So when you think about the Old Testament, the Bible will say that someone offered a sacrifice, like Abel, for example, and it came to God as a sweet-smelling, you know, fragrance exactly as a smelling fragrance and so god is telling us that if you're going to walk with the god of covenant there must be a system of regular consistent interface and that's called an altar that's really what we call your prayer life okay that's where you and god meet that's where you and god have appointments that's where you talk to god and god talks to you prayer is not just you talking to god because you come and you offload everything on god and you turn your back and walk away but god spoke to abraham abraham spoke to god there was communion even in the old testament so how much more you and i in the new testament if you're going to walk with god and enjoy the benefits of his covenant you must understand altars you must have a prayer life that's consistent that's structured that's systematic that's not haphazard you must have an altar and sometimes like i said altars include offerings so for example just to give you a new testament example in the book of Acts chapter 10, from the, from the very first verse, the Bible says that God was talking about a man called Cornelius. An angel appeared to him and said to him that your prayers and your offerings have ascended to God. Your prayer. So your, your offerings and your prayers have the same shape in heaven. They come up to God like incense. Both. Both. God doesn't hear words in heaven. What God does is he smells fragrance. So when we start to pray, what's happening is that there is a system, a technology by which what we are saying to God is ascending. And it's either bringing the right fragrance to God or the wrong fragrance. You would bring the right fragrance in Jesus' name. If you read Revelation, the Bible talks about the incense, which is the prayers of saints, ascends before God. So is your jar of incense in heaven, is it empty? Is there anything there? Is there anything there? Your offerings and your prayers and your prayers and the third one like i said is sacrifice and sacrifice comes in many shapes and sizes is what you do for god that costs you something it doesn't have to be just money some of you serving on team is a sacrifice some people take uber and come here for rehearsals on friday they spend 25 dollars, 30 dollars every week and they're maybe like oh god my my pocket is looking funny that can be a sacrifice in heaven that's a fragrance so you build altars, and Abraham was always raising altars. Over the life of Abraham, there were a number of altars that he raised. I don't know where he understood that technology, but he did. But he did. And you see, altars speak for you when you're not even alive anymore. That thing about altars, God is a God, is a transgenerational God. Nothing God does ends with a generation. 
he, he, he remembers. And the Bible is clear. God said, look, when I punish, I punish for four generations. When I bless, I bless for a thousand generations. Do you understand that? Yeah, he's a God of generations. And so Abraham raised an altar. He died. Then his son, Isaac, lived. And then Isaac had a son called Jacob. In Genesis chapter 28, I believe, Jacob is running away from home. I'll talk about that later today. He gets to this particular place. He does not know. He has no clue that when his grandfather was alive, his grandfather raised an altar in that location. And he lay down there to sleep. The place is called Bethel. And the Bible says when <laughs> Jacob put, he took a stone and laid his head on the stone. I don't know who sleeps with stones, but this guy is a strange man. Very strange dude. When he laid his head down to sleep, the Bible says that the heavens opened. Thank you. Came to a certain place, stayed there all night because it's, it's, now listen to me. He thought that he was stopping in this place because it was now dark. He did not know that the altar of his grandfather had constrained him to that location because he was going to have an encounter with God. And the Bible says he took one of the stones of that place, put it at his head, laid down in that place to sleep. Please move on to the next one. Thank you. Then he dreamed, dreamed. And behold, <laughs> a ladder, a ladder was set up on the earth and its top reached to heaven. And there, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. That was an altar that Abraham raised hundreds of years ago. And Isaac was now a victim of his grandfather's altars. I said to us a few weeks ago, what would you leave for your generations? What would you leave for people that come after you? Would you leave them spiritual liability? Or would you leave them assets? Or nothing? Some of, you are, some of you are neutral. Some of you are neutral. I, don't, I would not leave liabilities, but I would not leave assets. They would just start their own journey. But that's not how it's supposed to work. You're supposed to build, okay, so that the next generation can come and benefit from something that you've done. Move on, please. Next, next verse. Bible says, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father. You remember that? Abraham. And the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I'll give to you and your descendants. Keep going, please. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. Now, look at the promises that God is speaking to this man. Look at, just look at the wealth, all right? And you shall spread abroad. Say amen to this one. To the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. And in you and your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Keep going. Amen. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. I'll bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. Say amen, please. Amen. Now look at this guy. Then Jacob awoke from sleep, and he said, Surely the Lord is in this, this particular place. And I did not know it. Next verse. He says that this is not, he was afraid. How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. So the house of God is not necessarily just a church. Mm-hmm. Okay, and this is the gate of heaven. Then he rose in the morning, took a, the stone, put it at his head. He now made an altar. He basically reinstated that altar, poured oil, and went on his journey. Yeah. So that's the strategy of altars. When you work with a covenant God, you must understand altars. There's something about consistency in the realm of the spirit that makes for accuracy. I don't know why. There is a consistency about it. So when you pray, please be consistent in prayer. It's better for you to pray five minutes every day than for you to go two weeks and not pray. Then you pray for three hours. 
then you now go another four months, then you pray for seven hours, and you say, I'm charged. No, no, you're not charged. You're not charged at all. Pray five minutes daily, consistently. It's better than haphazard praying. It's the consistency. And the thing about this is that the Holy Spirit knows that you're coming to that place of meeting. So what you need for that day, for that week, he will prepare it for you. As you sit with him, he will tell you, do this, don't apply here, go here, knock on these doors. And that's how we walk with the covenant God, by his voice. But where do you hear his voice? In a place of altars. In a place of altars. Say amen. 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 Okay. That was a prelude. My, <laughs> my sermon for today, that was finishing up where we left up last week. There was, I was going to talk to, to us um, at Team Night yesterday around some of the temptations you would face working with the covenant God. All right? Um, and I'm not able to get into that, so another year, another time. Uh, <laughs> amen. So now I want to talk to you about the covenant at work. The covenant at work. The covenant at work. <clears throat> We've talked about your, you know, what's required. The fact that the faithfulness of the one was important. And so you as a person can work with God faithfully and establish a track with God. We've talked about what you need to do to walk with the covenant God. But now let's examine some of the things that the covenant can do and will do in your life. <laughs> in the name of Jesus. Let's examine the life of Abraham. So what we're going to do, this is our method to this study. Okay? We're going to examine the life of Abraham. We're going to examine the life of Isaac. We're going to examine the life of Jacob. We're going to take one dominant expression of the covenant in the life of Abraham. The dominant expression of the covenant in the life of Isaac, and the dominant expression of the covenant in the life of Jacob. All right? And we'll blow those up. When you think about Abraham, out of everything that God did with Abraham, because like I said to you a few weeks ago, Abraham lived a supernatural life. That's just how the guy lived, as you should. I believe, I pick, okay? <laughs> I believe that, from my understanding, this is what spoke to me, so you might have a different revelation. That the most dominant expression of the covenant to Abraham was Isaac. Do you understand that? Was the fact that he had a child at the age of 100. In line with the promise that God gave him. There are other things that God did for Abraham. He became rich, he became wealthy, God protected him, all that. That's, and those, are very, those are all manifestations of the covenant. But I believe that the peak... The crown of the, the expression of that covenant that God had with Abraham in the life of Abraham was the birth of Isaac. Do, does that make sense? Because it didn't make sense. It did not make sense. And please listen to me because today I bring encouragement. I bring encouragement today. I bring encouragement today. God said to Abraham, I will give you a child. Abraham was 75. And God waited 25 years to bring the promise to pass. Now, I have a question for those of you who understand science. If you want to work a miracle, wouldn't you do it closer to menopause? You know, like if, like if I was God, I'm not. But let's assume I was God. The way I would think about this is um, I've committed myself. Let me do it quickly. Because every year it gets more difficult. God, God is not phased. He's just chilling. 
Then he's talking to Abraham about random things. And Abraham is going, bro, <laughs> what shall you give me seeing that I have no child? And God says, don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> so this is what Isaac means, Uzama. <laughs> oh, dear Jesus. Isaac means this. Please listen. That there is nothing God cannot do. That's the summary of Isaac. That there is nothing that God cannot do. Beyond the fact that there's nothing God cannot do, that there is nothing difficult for God. The way the Holy Spirit spoke to me about this so strongly, it encouraged me. You know, God said to me that if I chose to wait till Abraham was 500 years old, it's just as easy for me as it would have been at 75 or 100. We think God is like us. We think that as things start to get bad and things start to get worse, it becomes more difficult for God to, to work. Like God is panicked, like, oh, the things are getting... No, God is like, look, I chose 100. I could have chosen 125, 148. It doesn't matter to me. It's the same thing to me. There is nothing that God cannot do. So it doesn't matter what you're trusting God for. If it's in your destiny, if it's in the plan of God for you, I want you to go to sleep. Well, don't go to sleep. Pray. You know what I mean. But relax. That's what I'm trying to say. There's nothing God cannot do. Our problems are so magnified. Small things become big things in our hearts. And even big things become bigger things like, oh God, what? No. No. We had a testimony here yesterday during Team Night about someone who had brain tumor. Was it a brain tumor that disappeared? There's nothing God cannot do. And I like how God shows off. Because he doesn't show off, you know, like we do. He does it quietly, like it's nothing. He likes to prove a point. Because why wouldn't you give Abraham a child at 76? Why wait till 100? Because I'm God. I do what I please. I do it how I please, however I choose to. So Isaac means that there is nothing God cannot do. So for someone here today, you need to understand that. You need to embrace that. You need to hear that. That might be the only word for you, that there is nothing God cannot do. God gave you a promise many years ago, and you're like, oh, no. How's God going to do this? It doesn't even make sense. It, it, God does, what you consider sense doesn't apply to God. That's your own problem. That's your definition of sense. That's your definition of sense. <laughs> the Bible says that Jesus went to a wedding. They ran out of wine. He was cajoled by his mom. And he told them, go bring water pots. Pour water. Fill the water pots. And he told them, draw the water pots and go and give it to the chairman of the feast. There's all kinds of questions in there. But thank God for servants that listen. They, because when they drew the water, it wasn't wine, it was water. Yeah. This servant carried water. He was about to get his life chopped off. He went to the chairman. He didn't go to just a guest. He went to the high table where the governor was sitting and said, we've got some new wine. <laughs> and he poured it out and it was wine. And the Bible says that this is the beginning of miracles that Jesus started to do. God likes to prove a point. Just because he's God. 
just because he's God. My prayer for you is that God will prove a point with your life. Amen. Mm. That God will do something in your life that proves a point to you first, to the enemies, or to the doubters next, and to the world at large in the name of Jesus. Amen. God likes to prove a point. Isaac also means that God is committed to your laughter. Yeah. God is committed to your laughter. God, because Isaac means laughter. And Sarah said that God, had made, God has made me laugh. And everyone who hears it will laugh with me. God will make you laugh. God will make you laugh. God is committed to your laughter. He's a father. He's a father. So if he has ability and he loves you, then there are things that he will do in your life. There are many things that God has not done in our life because the season has not come. Because the Bible says about Sarah that according to the time of life, that's that thing called process with God, that according to the time of life, Isaac came. The third thing I want to say about this particular one is that God operates above and beyond the physical or natural limitations. So there are limitations that exist, and we don't doubt the limitations. There is a way that things work. We understand that. We understand that you need seven years' work experience to get to this level in your, in your career. You, we understand those things. We understand that... <laughs> There are natural limitations, what we call the process of men, because there's God's process and there's the process of men. But with God, it didn't matter. Sarah said, how can I have a child? How? Just tell me how. And God said, it doesn't really matter to me. It doesn't really matter. The natural and the physical limitations will not be a hindrance to what I want to do in your life. Genesis 18 and 13, the Bible says, And the Lord said to Abraham, By the way, yesterday during team night, I don't know how many testimonies we had. It was a lot. It was a, it was a lot. That's how I can describe it. It was a lot. But during the testimonies, the Lord spoke to me and said that we're about to enter a season of miracles. In other words, the testimonies are just testimonies. Now we will see miracles. We will see miracles. In the name of Jesus. Genesis 18 and 13. The Bible says, why did, so the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? You know why Sarah laughed? Because what God was saying was ridiculous. Made no sense. Why did Sarah laugh? Saying, surely shall I bear a child since I am old. Now listen to what God says. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Can you ask someone that question? Can you tell them, is anything too hard? Can you ask them very well, is anything too hard for the Lord? Then he says, at the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life. And Sarah shall have a son. Look at that. A son. He didn't even say a child. A son. I have concluded it in heaven. It will be on the earth. In the life of Abraham, the covenant signifies there is nothing God cannot do. Please believe it. Please believe it. And some of you right now in your mind are thinking, well, this is the God of the Bible. He has changed. He doesn't do this stuff anymore. Let me assure you that God does not change. No, God does not change. 
I'm tempted to sing a song by Ty Trivet. If he did it before, he will do it again. He's the same God back then. He's the same God right now. He will never change. Let's look at Isaac. In the life of Isaac, I believe, like I said, you can have a different revelation based on what you study, and that's perfectly fine. This is what I want to teach you about. That the dominant expression of God in the life of Isaac is the God of increase. The God of increase. If you want to summarize the life of Isaac, some of the key things that happened in his life, the, the main thing you will say about Isaac was that his economy was different. It was like Isaac lived in Ottawa, but he was operating the economy of heaven. There was nothing happening in the surrounding area around Isaac that influenced his life or that changed his possibilities. He was the God of increase. If you want to understand increase, you need to study Isaac. The story of Isaac, I'll paraphrase, because I want to read more when I get to the story of Jacob, is that there was a famine in the land. There was a famine in the land. That means that there was inflation, gas, gas prices. The economy was funny. There were no jobs. Nothing was working. Businesses were shutting down. People were moving into their friends' guest houses. <laughs> mm -hmm. Bad, bad times. And naturally speaking, as a sensible human being, Isaac was ready to carry his bags and leave. He says, I'll, I'll go to Egypt. For some reason, Egypt always has bread when everybody else has nothing. I'll go to Egypt. That's what Abraham did in his day when there was a famine in the day of Abraham. The Bible says he went to Egypt. So Isaac had made up his mind. He had strategized with his family. He says, look, we got to move. Things are not working out here. Genesis 28. No, 26. 26. Genesis 26, I think verse 1 and 2. The Bible says, and God came to him and says, don't move. And the first thing he's probably thinking is, what? Why? There's a famine in the land. God says, don't move. He says, you shall live in the land of which I shall tell you. Isaac obeyed. Remember I talked about the significance of hearing God, the voice of God? One of the ways you walk with God is by hearing his voice. You don't have a chance. You don't even have, there's no hope if he's not speaking to you. So Isaac would have just made a blunder. So God says, stay. Isaac says, sure, you're a smart God. My dad told me that you keep your promises. I'll stay. So he stayed in the land. And the Bible says that after a while, Isaac sowed in that land. Genesis 26 and verse 12. And in the same year, he reaped a hundredfold. Now, listen. Listen. You need to understand a few things here. The first thing is the fact that Isaac had faith. There is something you must know. When I talked about knowing something about God that proves your trust and confidence in him. There's something you must know to put your seed at risk in a time of famine. Do you understand? Uh, yes. You, if, if it's a famine period, you will keep your seed because it would not grow. There is no rain. That's what famine means. And the crops were all lost. 
So for Isaac to sow, to begin with, there was something he knew that everybody around him did not know. He sowed in that land, that land where there was famine. And Bible says, in, not next year, in the same year, a hundredfold. God of the increase. And beyond this, the Bible says that, and the Lord blessed him. The man, listen, began to prosper. He continued, <laughs> he continued to prosper until he became very, in other words, I don't believe he sowed once. I think this thing was just happening. This was the way he operated throughout the family. For he had possession of flocks and possession of herds and a great number of servants. Now listen to that. The Philistines envied him. Isaac's dimension is the kind of dimension that tells us that a nation can envy a man. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The Philistines envied him. That's the kind of increase. It's the increase that brings distinction. That's the type of, now listen, we have to qualify when we say increase, because all of us, when we pray, God, increase my family, that's true. But there is a kind of increase that God brings that it, it, it's, it draws a line of demarcation. It separates you from everybody in your class. Everybody, you know, we all came to Canada the same year. How do you have 17 houses? Yes, yes. Yes, I know you received that. <laughs> you know, we just came together. We are still, we are not even got our first house. How? That's the kind of increase that Isaac had. It separates people. Clearly, everybody knew that he was suspect. That's what it meant. In the, in the year of farming, so when everyone is saying that there's a casting down, remember that scripture? You will say, there's a lifting up. That's an Isaac dimension. That's an Isaac dimension. It's increase that brings distinction. It's increase against all odds. When the odds are against you. And sometimes the odds are truly against you. <laughs> it's increase against all odds. It's increase that exempts from famine and it distinguishes you at the same time. That was Isaac's dimension. He had a handle of that. The Bible says that he continued. The Philistines, they envied him. They envied him. They said, what kind of, what is this? You are even a stranger in our land. It's the increase that brings envy. Some of you are like, no amen to that. I don't want anybody to envy me. You haven't increased. You haven't increased. When you increase, you, it's a package. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You buy one, you get one free. <laughs> they come together. <laughs> they come together. Because like I said, it's not, you see, if the economy is thriving and everybody's doing well and you're increasing, nobody's going to envy you because we're all doing well. Yeah, we're all doing well. But when you're in Egypt, and the Bible says that there was darkness upon the land of Egypt, so thick a darkness that no man could even see his neighbor. And in the land of Goshen, there was light. That's the kind of, that all the Egyptians said, ah, these Israelites are bad people. You start to envy them. I, I'm not saying this, by the way. You have to know my heart already by now. I'm not saying this to stir up some kind of vain, you know, materialism in you. No, no, no. I'm saying it as, 
a responsible steward of the word of God. It is part of our covenant that we would increase. And the increase would bring envy. It didn't just happen in the life of Isaac. It happened in Egypt. When the children of Israel got to Egypt, they started to increase so much that the Egyptians said, no, we're going to put them in slavery. Yeah. I like this one. The kind of increase that Isaac had is increase that terrifies the enemy. It terrifies him. Because after a while, the Philistine king came to Isaac and said, let's negotiate. We have seen that God is with you. So let's make a pact. Let's enter a covenant that you will neither do us harm. And we will. Now, when a nation comes to negotiate an agreement with one man, God has lifted that man's head. God has lifted his head. It terrifies the enemy. There is a kind of increase that comes and the enemy would be terrified because of what it means for the kingdom. Do you understand what it means? If everybody in this church became a millionaire today, the enemy will be terrified. He's not terrified because you will buy new cars. He's terrified because he knows what that means for souls. So there's a kind of increase that terrifies the enemy. Finally, it's the kind of increase that preaches. If Isaac was a preacher, he would never need to speak a word. He would just say, you don't know Jesus? Come to my house. See my farm. See that? You're, you're aware there's a farming out there, right? Look, we're about to harvest the third time this year. Will you accept Jesus? Everybody kneel down. <laughs> I, we accept him. We accept him. It's the kind of increase that preaches. Because when they came to him, they said, we've seen that God is with you. God is with you. The sermons that we preach is not just our words. The signs and wonders preach sermons. It makes, actually, it makes preaching easy. It makes preaching easy. Like people say, you can't doubt proofs after a while. The source of this increase is heaven. It's not anything on the earth. You have to understand that. It's something from up. <laughs> Let me tell you this. Because I, I, I meditated about on this a while. And I came to understand something that let's assume that, hi Michelle, we are all neighbors, Sharon, Brandy, Wendy, Michelle, Miriam. So this is, this, this, this is Sharon's lot, okay, this is your lot, this is Brandy's, this one is Michelle's, this one, I mean Wendy, this is Michelle's, no, this is Isaac's, this is Michelle's. All of us are neighbors. All these farms are dry. Sorry, your farms are not dry. I'm Isaac. I'm Isaac. I'm Isaac. <laughs> but this farm is thriving. Pay attention. There's nothing different about the natural elements. There's no rain. How his ground is getting watered, nobody knows. And nobody should ask. Because you, you, you can't answer the question. Do you understand? So this, this, this is thriving. Now, Brandy says, rubbish. Let's overthrow him. So they move Isaac and move him to this land. And Brandy takes over this land. It will dry. <laughs> this one will start to grow. Do you understand? It was nothing that came from the physical environment. It was the man. It was the man. If Brandy says, okay, I give up. Let me be your friend. Let us plant on the same land. You, pack, you plant here, I plant here. <laughs> you know what's going to happen. It will not grow for her, but the other one will grow. It will not grow. 
that tells you that anything that comes from heaven can never be altered on the earth. Wow. Yes. It's an increase that preaches. That was Isaac's dimension. Supernatural increase. The God of Jacob. Jacob was a very strange being because he was a crook. Really, the truth about the matter is that if you are a certain kind of person, most of us, actually, when you read the story of Jacob, you won't be too happy with God. That's the truth. You read the story of Jacob, you won't be too happy with God. You feel like Jacob deserved the punishment. Don't lie. You, don't, you, you, you felt like Jacob deserved the blessings that he got. No. Most of us were like, God, you're not right. You're not right. The dimension that Jacob mirrors is the God of mercy. Yes. Because the Bible is clear that, let's forget about the fact that people say he stole his brother's blessing. I don't believe he stole his brother's blessing. I don't. I believe his brother had already gave up the blessing when he sold his brother. But what he did was that he deceived his father. So that one he's guilty of. Do you understand? Because the father asked him more than once, is this Esau. He said yes. He even changed his accent to sound like Esau. He deceived the old man. A covenant man. He deceived the man. He deceived the man so much that the man poured out the blessing upon him. The blessing that was meant for his brother. When Esau came and Esau broke down in tears. Started to cry. Isaac was trembling. Because Isaac really loved Esau. Not Jacob. The Bible says that. So when you read the Bible with your church mind, you're going, this guy deserves punishment. <clears throat> but the Jacob dimension is a God of mercy. For all of us, I assure you that there is something that the enemy is accusing you of right now before God. Just the way we are accusing Jacob. There's something that the enemy is using to say, she doesn't deserve that. He does not deserve that. He deserves punishment. She deserves punishment. There is an accusation. The Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren. Actually, the Bible is clear to explain that. He does not cease to accuse us day and night. No off days. He's going to find everything to bring accusation against you. But I thank God for the God of Jacob. Mm. You see, without confusing you, you have to understand that when you say God is a merciful God, it almost contradicts the fact that God is a just God. Almost. But there is a system that only God knows how he administers mercy and still retains his just nature. I don't know. I don't know how God justified this. In fact, I don't even care. No, it's true. I don't even want to know. It's true. But God somehow, because he's still just, justified that this was right. Even though to you and I, Jacob should have been punished. So let me show you something. 
Genesis chapter 28, from verse 11 to 15. And then I'll jump to 20. Please listen with your spirit. This is the story we started to read earlier. He came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. This is Jacob. What is happening here is he stole his brother's blessing. His brother said, I will kill him. Jacob ran away. That's the journey. He was on that journey when he fell asleep and had this encounter. And he took one of the stones of that place, put it at his head. He lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed. And behold, a ladder was set up on the earth. Its top reached to the heaven. So this is an encounter with God. There were angels ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and the Lord said, Now, these are the things that God is about to say to Jacob are not the kind of things you say to someone who has just stolen a blessing. Do you understand? This is the mercy of God at work. As if he never did anything. <laughs> I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I'll give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, north, south. In you, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you. That's a commitment from God. It doesn't matter what you do, Jacob. I will never leave you. I might allow a little adversity to come your way, but that I would leave you, it would never happen. How many of you need that, such an assurance from God? That God will never leave you. God will never leave you. I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. In other words, God was saying about Jacob that, look, even if you try to mess up, there's a certain level of commitment I'm making to you that would make it impossible for you to miss your purpose. That would make it impossible for you to live below or beneath the standard that my promises over your life dictate. I will, <laughs> I will do whatever it takes. And so you understand now why God wrestled with Jacob. Because the guy had still been doing some shady stuff. And he got to a point, God says, I will, I will have to deal with this guy. Because his destiny is bigger than anything. You know that, that encounter, he wrestled with God, and the Bible says God dislocated his hip. And then he surrendered. So God asked him, what is your name? He said, my name is Jacob. Because the last time he was asked, what is your name? He said, my name is Esau. Now he had repented. So God says, aha, your name will no longer be Jacob. You will be called Israel. Do you understand that? God brought him into an encounter that forced him to align with God. Because he was on his way back. He'd gone on this journey. By the way, if you read further down, verse 20, let me show you something else there. The Bible says, after this encounter with God, Jacob did something. He made a vow. He made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going and give, now listen to this with your spirit. Look at what Jacob is praying for, a covenant man, and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on. That I may come back to my father's house in peace. So he's praying for the most basic needs of a human being, food, clothing, and protection. That's what Jacob is really, because when he left home, he left in a hurry. He left with one stake in his hand. That was his testimony. So he's just saying, God, just don't let me die. He's not thinking, all these ones that God is saying, I'll bless you to the West. He's like, forget about the West. 
and the east. In the center, keep me. Just give me food to eat, bread and clothing to put on my back. If you can do that for me, then you will be my God. A covenant man. God, did, God ignored him. Yeah, God did not respond to this. Because when God started to work on Jacob, Jacob prospered in the, land of, in the house of Laban where he ran to. On his way back from Laban, he'd grown. That's another testimony. He'd expanded. He's coming back after leaving Laban. Then Esau, his brother, that he ran away from, hears that Jacob is coming back. And Esau sets out with, I remember exactly, I think it was 400 men, if I'm not mistaken, to come and welcome him. Not welcome, no. That was a metaphor. To come and deal with him. That was the agenda. <laughs> so, <laughs> Jacob understands Esau is coming. <laughs> He's still scared of Esau, rightly. But Esau had increased to a degree, but not like Jacob. So, Jacob started you know, plotting. He sent a first set of goods ahead to Esau. So, when they, when they come to Esau, they should tell them, oh, this is from your, you know, Isaac, your servant. I mean, Jacob, your servant. Accept this offering. Then he sent another package. You know, he's a schemer. He's a schemer. He was, he was prepping the guy's mind. He was still trying to play games with God. So after sending three or so packages ahead, the Bible says he was now left alone with God. That's where God encountered him. And then God dealt with him. Then he says, it's true. I'm a, I'm a rogue. God says, I'm glad you accept. Your name will now be called Israel. And in that moment, things changed. So when he met Esau, Esau was like, oh, my brother, happy to see you. But something had shifted. Something had shifted. It's the God of mercy. Mercy that gives you an advantage. Mercy that also gives you encounters with God. I hope you know that God doesn't owe us encounters. He doesn't owe us encounters. He can be hidden all his days, and you just walk with him by faith. Sometimes God comes out into the open, like he did on Friday, just to let you know, I'm still with you. He doesn't owe us that dimension at all. So this was the mercy of God at work. And the last thing about the mercy of God, which a lot of people don't understand, is that the mercy of God actually fights for you. Psalms 136 from verse 15. The mercy of God fights for people. Verse 15, the Bible says this, listen. God overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. Why? For his mercies endure forever. He led his people through the wilderness for his mercies endure forever. He struck down great kings. Why? Because of his mercies that endure forever. And he slew famous kings. Why? Because of his mercies that endure forever. Now, all the names of all these guys. Then he goes on to say this. He gave their land as a heritage. Why? For his mercies endure forever. The mercies of God. In Abraham, we'll see that there is nothing God cannot do. Please believe that. You have to believe that. It's not worth serving a God whose hands are tied. No. Don't waste your time. In Isaac, we see the God of the increase. Increase that distinguishes people. In Jacob, we see a God of mercy. Thanks again for listening. 
To hear more messages like this one, make sure you subscribe to our podcast channel. If you want to be a blessing to others, share the message. To stay connected, download our app and follow us on Instagram at Lighthouse Church Ottawa. We love you.